So tonight will be 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 9, and then we'll look at chapter 22 as well. So a minute ago, I asked you to make a list, three, three things on the list, the top reasons why you, uh, U.S. adults, United States adults, do not attend church. What are the reasons that they give? Before I give you those, I want to give you the other side of that poll. This is a Pew study in 2018. The top reasons adults in the United States give for choosing to attend church, and their metric for this poll was at least once or twice a month. That was their definition of regular church attendance, and they said, what are the reasons that you go? And so here are the reasons. We'll just put them up here. 81%, you could vote for more than one thing, right? This was like a check all that apply. 81% said, I go to become closer to God. 69% said, I go so my children will have a moral foundation. I'll tell you as a church staff member that we hear that one a lot, whether it's kids or grandkids, people come and they almost say to you, I'm okay, don't worry about me, I'm here for my kids. So anyway, interesting answer. 68, uh, I come to make myself a better person. 66, I come for comfort in times of sorrow. 59% say the sermon is helpful. 57% say I want to be part of a community of faith. 37%, so now you're getting down into not very common answers, but this is the ranking. Uh, 37% continue family religious tradition. 31%, I feel some obligation, religious or spiritual obligation to attend. 19%, to meet people and socialize. I think that's probably a little underreported in this poll. I think that one maybe should be a little bit higher. 16%, to please family or spouse. So there you go. I don't know if that list surprises you or not, but now you can look at your list, the top reasons that adults in the United States give for not attending church. Here are the top three. One, I practice my faith in other ways. So that's the person who says, I do believe, right? I believe there's a God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in something spiritual. I don't go to church. Believer, that is a pretty honest answer. I don't believe in it, so I don't go. And number three, I haven't found a place of worship that I like. I've been to all the churches and none of them are any good. I'd, yeah, not so much. There you go. Um, there's, your, there's your reasons. Tonight, what I want you to think about is this. Why do you come to worship? That's the issue we're really talking about. We're going to talk about two chapters of the Old Testament. There are four main characters in this passage and their paths all intersect at what you could call a holy place. And I don't mean a holy place in the sense of like mystical, spiritual, almost magical forces or powers there. I mean a holy place as in it is set apart. That's the, the fundamental idea of holiness. Something has been set apart. These men cross paths in one way or another at a holy place, a place that has been set apart for worship. And they all come to this place or find themselves at this place with different motivations. They're there for different reasons. They have different agendas. And they all come away a little bit different based on their time at that quote-unquote holy place. And as we look at this story and we think about the way these guys interact, your characters are David, 
Ahimelech, Dog, and Saul. And they all sort of cross paths at this holy place in Nob. They all come away different. The difference in these men in approaching and leaving is what motivated them to be at that holy place? What motivated them to participate in worship? And the question for us is just to do a little bit of soul searching and to say, well, what motivates me? Why would I come on a Wednesday night? Why do I wake up and show up on a Sunday morning? What am I actually doing there? And is there something I need to learn from these men in the experiences that they had? Peterson says it like this. Every time we enter a holy place and become aware of the presence of a holy God, we leave either better or worse. Every time you, just to make it very personal for us, Every time you come and gather with the people of God in this place and we sing songs to a holy God and we talk about a holy God and we pray to a holy God and we listen to the the word of a holy God, Peterson is saying we leave every time better or worse. The question is what is your aim? What is your reason? What is your motivation in coming in the first place? And what is God doing in your life while you're here. So let me give you just a little bit of context and we're going to jump in and read in chapter 21. David is on the run. He's running from Saul. At this point in the story, Saul has made at least eight attempts to murder David. And we talked about those eight attempts last week. At least eight times Saul has tried to murder David. And his moodiness and his distaste for David at this point has devolved into like official state policy, David is a fugitive. David is a wanted man. The king of Israel wants David dead, and that is now essentially the law of the land, if you want to think about it in those terms. And so we're going to look at chapter 21 and 22 and see how this plays out. David, to set the scene, David sought refuge at the tabernacle in Nob. David sought refuge at the tabernacle in Nob. And so let's just read a little bit. We'll read 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 9, and then I'll show you a map. Word of God says this, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling. And he said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. Vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, his name was Dog, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, 
Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, behold, it's here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none like that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Okay, let's start with a little geography here. I'll put a a map up on the screen for you. This map shows you inside the circle, you see Jebus, that is Jerusalem, the ancient city of Jerusalem. Just about a mile to the northeast is the city of Nob, and then you can see David's homeland down to the south in Bethlehem. This story takes place in Nob. We really know nothing about this city. There's not a lot uh, that you can glean from the Old Testament about, about this place. It was a small town, very close to Jerusalem. It was not a Levitical city. And what it sounds like when you read this story is David goes to this holy place, to this sanctuary, and Ahimelech, the priest, is there, is that um, perhaps at this point in history, the tabernacle had been pitched in Nob. So the old tent that they made when they came out of Egypt and they'd carried it around the wilderness and they'd set it up in the time of the judges, maybe it's pitched here. And basically you kind of have like a monastery type community. In the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 19, Nob is called the city of the priests. The city of the priests. So it sounds like there's a bunch of priests that have kind of moved here. It's not a Levitical city, but the priests have sort of settled here and their families are there. We know there's 85 of them and the tabernacle is there. This holy place is there and that's where David shows up uh, to Nob and he meets Ahimelech and he's the great-grandson of Eli. And I just want you to see the pieces of what's happening here in chapter 21 so we're clear about all of this. The first thing we need to nail down is this. David lied. He said things that were not true to Ahimelech. He lied to him. And it's interesting that Ahimelech knows something's not right from the get-go. Right? David's got a group of guys with him, but Ahimelech comes out and he says, Why are you here alone? And the idea seems to be, why are you here without official representation from Saul's court? Where's some of Saul's guys And why aren't they with you? Why are you here alone? And he actually comes out to talk to David and he's trembling. He's terrified. He's scared. He's uneasy. Somehow, someway, he knows something's not right. And David looks him straight in the face and lies to him. I'm here on official business. Top secret. No one knows about it. Don't bother asking. We didn't tell anybody. So you're not going to find anything out if you ask around. I'm here on secret business. Business. And he tells lie number one about his mission. Line number two is in verse eight, where he asks for this weapon. And he comes up with this tale. He spins this little uh, fantasy about I left so quickly, I didn't have time to grab my weapon on the way out, and I need something to fight. And, you know, silly me, I just left the key sitting right there on the counter and my sword with it. And can you give me a weapon? So he lies twice to Ahimelech. You can look at this and you can say, Maybe he was scared. Maybe he was so frightened on the run, Saul trying to kill him eight times in a row. Maybe he's just scared and he thinks he needs to lie to protect himself. You've probably told a lie in your life for that very reason. You thought, I'm in trouble. This is not going well. One lie is going to get me out of this. 
one lie is going to change everything. Maybe that's what David was thinking. Maybe you want to give David the benefit of the doubt, and maybe you want to say David was lying to protect Ahimelech. Maybe he knew if I let him in on what's going on right now, he's going to be guilty in taking care of me, and Saul's going to come after him. Maybe he's trying to protect him. I just want to point this out. Even if you give David the benefit of the doubt and you say he's trying to protect Ahimelech, you've got to come around in chapter 22 and say that plan backfired miserably. It did not go the way David thought it was going to go, and it all starts with two lies. It's interesting that David, when he fights Goliath, is offered armor and weapons and military equipment, and he passes on all of it. His faith is strong, and he goes out to fight Goliath with a string and a rock. Here he is just a few chapters later lying to a holy man so that he can get his hands on a sword and protect himself. It's just a different picture than what we saw David uh, in in the battle with Goliath. Peterson says it like this. This is perhaps the place to note in the story that David isn't, is not, set before us as a moral model to copy. David isn't a person whose actions we're inspired to imitate. In the company of David, read carefully what he says, in the company of David we don't feel inadequate because we know we could never do that well. Just the opposite. In the company of David we find someone who does as badly as or worse than we do, but who in the process doesn't quit, doesn't withdraw from God, David isn't an ideal life, but an actual life. And I just don't want to sugarcoat over the fact that he shows up to the holy place and tells two lies to the priest. You don't need to try to sanctify that. You don't need to try to explain that away. You just need to admit it for what it is. He shows up. He tells two lies. It all goes downward from there, at least for the priests in Nob. This piece is interesting, and I just want to be clear about this. This is sort of jumping to the New Testament. Jesus doesn't rebuke David for eating the bread of the presence. Jesus comments on this many, many, many years later. He's talking with the Pharisees who are so wrapped up in the letter of the law that they can't see the big picture. And Jesus brings this up and he says, look, David ate the bread and the priests let him have the bread. And that's exactly what they should have done. And it's interesting because technically, by the letter of the law, David wasn't supposed to eat the bread. And so just so you have an idea about this bread, I'll put a couple of pictures up. This is a sort of a schematic of what the tabernacle might have, could have, probably looked like. In the, the main part, this inner tent, there's sort of a cutaway. And in the back top right, you can see the, the most holy place where the ark was kept. And in the front place, the holy place... You see a priest in the circle, and when you walked in to the right, there was the bread. On the left, there was a, a, a candle where they would light these candles, and on the right, there was this bread of the presence. And it may have looked something like this. This is sort of a recreation that gives you some idea. You see it's a table, and it's covered in gold, and it's got the poles in it so that the priest can carry these holy, sacred objects with the poles, and there's cups there, and they put this bread out. And they put, put the bread out once a week, and they leave it there. And it's the bread of the presence, right? And they leave it there as a reminder. God fed his people in the wilderness. God provides for our needs. God meets our needs. God's going to feed us. God is is the bread of life is sort of the idea Jesus is going to tease out later on some levels. And once a week, they got rid of that bread and they put hot bread out. And when they got rid of the old, 
it wasn't just throw it out to the street, okay? In Kentucky, we used to serve at a soup kitchen, and Kroger gave us their old bread, right? The priests were not sending the bread of the presence to the soup kitchen, okay? In Kentucky, we had a Panera bread right down from the seminary, and every day they brought the day-old bread and gave it away to the seminary students, okay? That's a little closer to the idea here because you're talking a seminary. The bread of the presence, when they got rid of the old bread, was only to be eaten by the priests and their families. The Levites and their families, that's it. No one else is supposed to eat it. And that's very clear in the law. David shows up, and he's hungry, and he tells two lies, and he says, I need some bread. And Ahimelech says, all I got is the bread of the presence. That's all we have right now. And David says, give it to me, I'll eat it. And he takes it. And he gives it to this hungry man and his men. And Jesus comments on it and Jesus says, that's fine. Like the letter of the law was broken. But more important than the letter of the law with the the bread of the presence is meeting somebody's physical needs who's in a crisis. People are more important than bread. Don't get that backwards. Don't get so caught up in the rules of it all that you forget people in their situations of need. So Jesus doesn't rebuke him. And I want to point out one more thing. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord on David's behalf. And we don't actually read that in our passage. You don't read it in chapter 21. You read it in chapter 22, looking backwards. Chapter 22, verse 10, says, He inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions in the sword of Goliath the Philistine. We knew about the sword. We knew about the provisions. We didn't know he inquired of the Lord for David. And that had to be one of two two, uh, developments. On the one hand, David could have come and David could have said, I need you to pray for me. You're a holy man. You're the priest. I got something big going on and I need you to pray for me. On the other hand... This is what I think. David really wasn't thinking about prayer much at all. He's lying to the priest to his face. And I think Ahimelech, trembling, knows something is going on, and he feeds David, and at some point in all this, he says, I need to pray for you. I need to intercede on your behalf because something's going on here. Either way, he does pray for David. And it's interesting. David walks into this holy place, hungry and unarmed, And even though he comes in with mixed motives and a bag of lies, he leaves full and armed. And somewhere in there, there's a picture of what ought to happen when you come to a holy place, when you come to church, when you come to worship, where you say, I'm coming in. We talked about this Sunday. I'm not fine. My life's a mess. I'm hungry. I'm needy. I'm thirsty. And I need protection. And one of the things that ought to happen when the people of God gather together is that you walk out saying, I'm full. I'm full again. I've experienced the presence of God, and I'm armed. I'm equipped for what's next in front of me. That's how David came in, and that's how he leaves. So let's move on in the story, chapter 22. He escapes to the cave of Adullam, and later he escapes to Moab. And I'll put a map up, the same map, so you can see we were up on the top. And first he goes to the cave of Adullam, down in the middle of Judah. And then eventually he's going to cross over the Dead Sea and he's going to end up in Moab. So he's out of Israelite territory going over to Moab. So let's just read these verses. 1 Samuel 22, 1 to 5. 
David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, pay attention to this list of people. Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And you can underline that phrase. I think it's important. Let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed, and he went into the forest of Hereth. Okay? Three or four things I want you to see here. David is joined by his family and hundreds of misfits. And if you've been paying attention to the story, I'm not sure which one was more discouraging to David, to have his family around or the misfits. Because his relationship with his family doesn't seem to be great, right? David's father thought so much of him that when one of the boys was going to be anointed, he doesn't even bring David to be considered. And his brothers are constantly teasing him about how unimportant he is and you're the youngest. Go back to the sheep. There's you got five sheep you're taking care of out there in the wilderness, those few sheep. They're laughing at him. They're teasing him. His family now needs him. David's a fugitive, which means their lives are in jeopardy. They're running from Saul. And now his family, who has not been great to him, comes to him and they need him. We need you to protect us. And how about this list of people? Those in distress, those in debt, and those who are bitter in soul. How would you like to be in charge of starting a new church? And I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the city of Odessa, and we're going to round up all the people in distress and everyone who owes the credit card company a lot of money, so no tithers, and everyone who's bitter there's your church. Start with 400 people. I've talked to church planners before who have gone out to plant churches and they've had in their mind, these are the people that are going to come with me to start this church. And they've looked up in about a year and they've said, this is not the group of people I thought was going to come with me. How did I end up with these people? I didn't pick this team, but God picked that team and God picked this team for David, his family and a whole bunch of misfits. How do you think David felt about that? He's on the run, family shows up, and the riffraff shows up. I imagine initially that David sort of groaned and thought, well, this is great. This is great. The king wants to kill me, and now I have to take care of these people. God might do that to you. In a time of distress in your life, in a time of difficulty in a time of conflict, God might send you some needy people. And he might want you in the midst of a crisis to lead and encourage and minister to other people who are in crisis. 
And in doing that, God might sort of redirect your attention from your own crisis to the needs of others and possibly even to him. I think that's exactly what happened to David in this situation. It would have been so easy for David on the run to just sit in this cave and pout and throw a pity party and feel sorry for himself. And instead, God sends him a whole bunch of people who need him, and suddenly David has a purpose. His purpose isn't just run from Saul and live another day and lie to the priest and get some bread. His purpose is, i got to take care of these people. These people need me. They need a leader. So his family shows up. Misfits show up. Next, he asked the king of Moab to grant asylum to his parents. I don't know about you, I think it's kind of odd that the king agrees to this. Maybe he thinks the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Saul's my enemy, and David's his enemy, so that makes David my friend, and I'm going to help him out. Maybe he knows, this is complete speculation, maybe he knows that David's great-grandmother was from Moab. You can look that up. Maybe he said David pulled some kind of string and said, hey, I've got family roots here. And text doesn't say that, but maybe there was some of that. David says, I need him to stay until I know what God will do for me. I don't know where that phrase came from, but that sounds like a different guy than the guy who's lying to the priest. He could have come up with some story. He could have spun some tale, but instead he says, look, God is going to do something for me. I don't know what and I don't know when. Until it happens, I need my parents to stay here, but I know that God's going to come through me. This is a guy who's regained a little bit of faith. And maybe it's a mustard seed, but that's enough. He knows God is going to do something for him. David grew spiritually during this difficult season in his life. How do we know that? He wrote psalms during this season. You can go look these up, Psalm 52 and Psalm 142. They both have notes, and the notes of those two psalms connect it with this time in David's life. He wasn't just running and trying to stay alive. He wasn't just managing a bunch of misfits. At some point, he actually begins working on his relationship with the Lord again, and he's writing. And it may be very honest writing. It may be very blunt writing. It may be very... Uh, awkward writing that we may not want to say those things out loud in church in front of other people. I mean, he's very direct with God about some of the things that he's dealing with, but he's dealing with God. He's not turned inward. He's not sulking in bitterness, but he's turned to the Lord. Also, I just want you to notice that the prophet Gad tells David, go back to Judah. And That may seem like an innocent detail to you. Verse 8, the prophet Gad said to David, don't remain in the stronghold, depart, go to the land of Judah. So he went. You may say, great, who cares? That's a good sign for David. One, he's listening to a prophet. There's times in David's life where he doesn't do that very well. But in this moment, he's listening to the prophet. He's listening to the man who speaks for the Lord. And he's doing something that puts himself in danger. Go back to Judah where Saul is, where Saul wants to kill you. Get out of Moab and go back into Israelite territory. And David agrees to do that. Alan Redpath describes the whole scene like this. So often the providences of God seem to run completely counter to his promises. That means your circumstances don't line up with what God said he's going to do. 
that happens a lot. He says that only happens that he may test our faith, only that he may ultimately accomplish his purpose for our lives in a way he could never do if the path were always smooth. It's when problems and difficulties seem to be overwhelming that the man of God or the woman of God learns some lessons that he or she could never learn otherwise. David's the anointed king, right? He's on the run in the desert. How in the world is he going to get training to lead Israel as the king? Where are you going to get that in the wilderness? There's no book you can read. You can't get on Amazon and order a a best-selling leadership book. There's no uh, people out there to lead or to to get together. Where is he going to learn to be a king? God's going to send him people. Rough people. Difficult people. The same kind of people he's going to have to lead when he's king of a nation. And he's giving him training. It may not seem like God is accomplishing his purpose in David's life, but that's exactly what he's doing. And Redpath is right. That, that's going to happen in your life. There's going to be seasons where you look around and you say, God, what are you doing in my life right now? Why do you have me in this situation? I was so much more useful there. Or I could be so much more useful there. Or I could do so much more for you if you would change this detail of my life or this circumstance of my life. And in the midst of that, you and I have to learn what David had to learn. God has you exactly where he wants you and he is working out his plan and his purposes in your life. What about Saul and Dog? We'll go through this quickly. They slaughter the priestly families of Nob. Saul and Dog slaughter these families. We'll read this quickly. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, speaking to his kinsmen, to his tribe. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Dog the Edomite. Just think about this. Dog hasn't said anything yet. But he sees an opportunity, and that's when it comes out. Then answered Dog the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, in his father's house, all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him the bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? 
who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to a servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out the hand, their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Dog, You turn and strike the priests. And Dog the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Several things I want you to see here before we move to application. Saul threw a paranoid temper tantrum about David. He's totally paranoid. He's totally out of his mind. He's dreaming up conspiracy at this point. When you read his speech... As he sits with his spear under this tamarisk tree, as he's holding court, everything he says is fabrication. He thinks Jonathan's out to get him. He thinks David's trying to, to rebel and he's trying to get rid of the, the line of Benjamin. He thinks uh, all these people have a, a secret conspiracy to, to keep secrets from him and to not tell him what's going on and to help David. It's all just paranoid craziness. He's paranoid. Why did you pray for David? Can you imagine? Why did you pray for someone? You shouldn't have prayed for him. He just kind of lost it. Ahimelech defended himself before Saul. I don't mean defended in the sense that he put up a fight. I just meant that he opened his mouth and he, he said some things to Saul to try to save his, his neck and his family's neck. He said, David's loyal to you. He's your son-in-law. He's loyal to you. He said, I've prayed for David many times. It's not the first time I've prayed for him. He says, me and my family are loyal to you. We're not trying to rebel against you. And then he says, I didn't know anything. Which is true, right? He didn't know. David had lied to him. He said, I didn't know any of it. Dog killed 85 priests and their families. And that's one of those lines in the Bible that's just really easy to read over and keep going. That's 85 priests and their families and all the livestock and everyone who lived in that town, they slaughtered all of them. 85. Four men cross paths at this same holy place. Ahiathar, David, Dog, and Saul. They all approach differently. They all leave changed. These two chapters force us to question our motives in worship. And so, very quickly, we'll think about each one. Ahimelech. 
Ahimelech cared about the spirit of the law more than the letter of the law. Technically, he did wrong. You could have pulled a, a chapter and verse out and thrown it at him and said, you shouldn't have done that. Technically, he broke the law. But as Jesus comments it, we comments on it, we talked about this, it was the right thing to do. He cared for a person more than the letter of the law. And he fed David this bread that he wasn't supposed to eat. That was Jesus' point to the Pharisees. His point to the Pharisees was, you're so wrapped up in Sabbath rules, you don't even care about people. You're so crazed about the letter of the law with the Sabbath that you don't even try to help anybody on the Sabbath. And he says to them, people are more important than a day. How would this play out for us? I think in a church like ours, it might play out like this. We like to study the Bible. We talk about the Bible. We do it in here. We do it in Sunday school classes. We do it in our children's classes, youth group. We do it on Sunday mornings. We can study and get lots of nice facts in our head, and we can get all of our doctrines square and straight, and we can come away learning new things about David and his life. The question is, does it change you at all? Like, you can show up, and you can know all the letters of the law in perfect order, and you can have it all down. Your system can be tight. Your theology can be clean. Your biblical doctrine can be rock solid. But if it doesn't change you and change the way you treat your family and change the way you work as an employee and change everything about your life, you've missed it. Don't get so wrapped up in the letter of the law and filling your head with knowledge that you don't allow it to then change the rest of your life. How are you going to approach worship? David approached worship with mixed motives. There's good and there's bad here. The bad is he lied twice to the priest. He wanted food. He wanted a weapon. And David, in that moment of crisis, thought the best way for me to get the things that I need is to tell a lie. That's a temptation for you all the time. I need to do one bad thing. Just one. Okay, maybe two. To get what I need. Why couldn't have David just gone to Ahimelech and said, Ahimelech, I'm in trouble. I really need help. We're starving. We're on the run. Saul's trying to kill me for no reason. And I don't have anything to defend myself. I need your help. I think Ahimelech would have helped him. I don't know how it would have all panned out, but I don't think he would have just ratted David out to Saul immediately. But in David's mind, he needed to tell a lie to get what he needed. It ended, as David described it, in verse 22, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. All of that bloodshed is on me. On a positive note, Ahimelech prays for David. David later expresses faith God's going to do something for me he says that to the king of Moab and he listens to the prophet all positive things he's letting someone pray for him he's thinking about the Lord and what God's going to do in keeping his promise he's listening to the prophet he approaches with mixed motives David in this story kind of falls upward right he he falls he stumbles he tells a lie but even in the lie he's Looking to the Lord, he's thinking of the Lord, he's 
trying and struggling and grasping for the Lord. And it may not be real clean and pretty. And it really may not even be something to emulate. But it's real. And in the end, he kind of grows through this experience. What about Dog? He was an opportunist who saw worship as a means to an end. Did you notice why he was at the, uh, the holy place in Nob to begin with? Doug was there because he was detained before the Lord, verse 7. He had gone to this holy place for some reason, and for some unknown reason, he was detained. I'd love to know what the reason was. What does it mean to be detained before the Lord? The text doesn't tell us, but he was detained. He was there. He wasn't there for worship. He was there for Doug. And when David shows up, they're just thinking through the progression of this. Dog doesn't know that David's lying. He doesn't know that David's spinning a tale. He's been detained before the Lord and Nob. He doesn't know what's happened. He doesn't know the new state policy. And so he hears it and it goes in his head and he just files it away and he doesn't even go directly to tell Saul. He doesn't mention it to him. And it's not till Saul gets the court together and goes on this paranoid rant that Dog, the opportunist, says, I got an opportunity. I was in a holy place, a place of worship, and something happened that I can use for my advancement. David going down a notch means I'm going to go up a notch. And he rats him out. He wasn't there to worship. He was probably frustrated that he was detained the whole time. Outwardly, he looked pious. He's in the right place with the right people. But when the moment arises, his heart is revealed. He's just an opportunist. He's calculating and he's looking to advance himself. Do people go to church with that motivation today? For what they can get out of it on a financial level, on a health level, on a business connection level, maybe even some, in some senses on a spiritual level? He's an opportunist and he's looking out for Dog. Saul, one more thought here, he wants nothing to do with the tabernacle or worship. He doesn't even go. He summons Ahimelech. He doesn't travel to Nob. This is the guy who used to try to use worship to his own ends. He used to offer sacrifices that he wasn't even supposed to offer. Now he doesn't even want to go near it. He's going to call the priest to him, but he's not going to go there. I think he didn't want to be reminded of the, the tabernacle and the sacrifices and sin and uh, all the rest of it. He doesn't want to hear from the priest or from the prophet. There was conviction there. I just want you to understand, Saul got there gradually. It was a, a long, slow fade for Saul, and one day he wakes up and he doesn't even want anything to do with the tabernacle at all. This man who started out so promising, his motives have been exposed over time, and now he wants... He wants nothing to do with the Lord or with worship. And the question for us is to look at these four men and to ask ourselves, how am I approaching worship? How am I approaching a holy place and an encounter with the Lord? Am I leaving better or worse from these regular times that I spend together with the people of God when we sing together and pray together and study the Word together? Am I coming as an opportunist, looking out for myself, Am I coming really wanting nothing to do with all of it? 
one of the answers was, I just come to make my spouse happy. I just come to keep peace in the family. I just come to keep the family tradition alive. Are you coming just to focus on the letter of the law, just to learn something new and leave intellectually stimulated? Are you coming to see the spirit of the law and what the law is pointing you to and what the scriptures are pointing to you, the glory of God and the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the promises of God. What is our motivation in approaching worship? I just want to pray for us as we end and pray that God would help us to think through that in our own lives.